Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Phil Dave. John Kay. Clive Roslin and Tony Honigberg. Coming up on this episode, we are going to be looking at the somewhat delicate but very important subject of homosexuality within the community and the community's reaction towards those who do identify as gay. However, we are also going to feature the story that has been in the paper this week, which says that certain institutions have been receiving hoax threats. And we'll be finding out from the CST, if you are from one of those institutions, what you should be doing about that. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the chief rabbi on a visit to Jerusalem, where he criticised the silence of Muslim leaders in the fight against rising anti-Semitism. In a speech made at the Sixth Global Forum for Combating Anti-Semitism, Ephraim Mervis hailed the many outstanding friends who were prepared to stand up and be counted, but said that too often Muslim clerics had cold feet before meetings with Jewish representatives. Leading booksellers, including Amazon, have agreed to remove some titles by controversial Holocaust deniers following a campaign by the anti-racism group Hope Not Hate. The organisation said that since publishing its findings, WH Smith and Foyles have stopped selling some books, including Did Six Million Really Die? and The Leuter Report, which argued that the Auschwitz gas chambers weren't used to kill people. The Jewish Labour MP Ruth Smead said hate-filled books have no place on the websites of respected retailers. The left-wing group Momentum have been criticised after two activists who were expelled and suspended by the Labour Party carried campaigning posters outside the party's headquarters ahead of a National Executive Committee meeting. Jewish anti-Zionist Tony Greenstein and Jackie Walker, who's also Jewish, were seen holding a Momentum banner and a Labour Against the Witch Hunt banner. The Jewish Labour movement called on Momentum to abide by the party's decisions. To the dismay of his family, the authorities in Germany have finally wound up the investigation into 22-year-old Jeremiah Duggan's death in 2003. Jeremiah, who was Jewish, was apparently involved with a German political cult and had told his mother Erika that he was in danger. His body was found by a road near Wiesbaden. Erika, from Golders Green, campaigned for years to get the German police to set aside their suicide verdict, saying contradictions in the case weren't followed up. Tributes have been paid to the Holocaust survivor Sabina Miller, who's died at the age of 95. Mrs Miller was born in Poland in 1922 and survived both the Warsaw Ghetto and a prolonged period sheltering in the Polish countryside to avoid deportation to the camps. Living in the UK, she shared her story to warn about the dangers of hatred and received the freedom of the City of London in recognition of her work to raise Holocaust awareness. The news this week. Vivian, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's have a look now at your copy of the Jewish News for this week, shall we? Editor Richard Ferrer joins us in studio to discuss and to let us know what is making the paper this week. Richard, front page, the headline reads, Stop Keeping Stumm. Never seen the studio so busy, by the way. Uh, there's about 28 people in this studio at the moment. Um, <laughs> fair old, fair old crowd. So, yeah, stop keeping Stumm. The chief rabbi has really opened up a bit of a hornet's nest this week, and good on him. A lot of people have been sidestepping the issue of Islamic anti-Semitism, mainstream anti-Semitism, the voices of the moderates, which are often kept quite silent, and particularly when temperatures rise in the Middle East and there's uh, war in Gaza, etc., the Jewish community in this country really feel it. And what we don't hear is the loud voices of the progressive mainstream Islamic movements standing up 
up and being counted with the Jewish community in the same way that the Jewish community certainly does that for the Muslim community. In fact, I think only last week there was this dreadful campaign, Punish a Muslim, this dreadful letter-writing campaign. First person to step up and, and, and say how horrific and outrageous it was, was the chief rabbi. Well, this week at the sixth global forum for combating anti-Semitism in Jerusalem, he said it as it is. He said, where are the moderate Muslims? Why aren't they speaking out? He even said that there are Muslim leaders who refuse to be photographed with him because they don't like how it plays out in their constituency. Doesn't like, they don't like how they are reacted because they are seen shoulder to shoulder with Jewish leaders. So he's really called, I think, on a, a new identity for British Muslims in this country, a more moderate, mainstream, middle of the road, progressive British Islam, if, if you like, and said, really, it's about time that, that minorities, particularly Judaism and, and Muslims, work together more harmoniously. For a man like the chief rabbi in a position he's in, it was pretty bold stuff. I think that some of the Muslims that don't stand up are actually fearful of them for themselves and their families. It sort of does boil down to, doesn't it, how one is going to be perceived by their own community. And in some strange way, this is almost a theme for this week's programme. But for someone to be daring enough to actually not give a, a hoot what someone from their community thinks of them, but to actually stand up for what they believe in, one could argue is far more admirable. Mm. Is, it, it, is it partly, Richard, do you think, the fact that the... Islamic faith in Britain doesn't have an equivalent of the chief rabbi or for that matter the Archbishop of Canterbury. That really is the nail nail on the head. Here, you know, two Jews, twenty-five opinions, mm, there's yes. everyone from the progressive movements to the ultra orthodox and and beyond. You don't have that multiple identification in the Muslim community. There really isn't lots of different hats, is there? Yeah. But although we have different wings of the community, I think even those who are members of liberal and reform synagogues have enormous amount of respect for the chief rabbi. I suppose the problem in the Islamic faith is perhaps to do with Shia and Sunni and all the other divisions that they have as well. There are moderate Muslim voices. Unfortunately, they are few and far between. In fact, we champion them on the pages of the Jewish News. We mm. have people like Majid Nawaz, mm. yes. Fayaz Mughal. There's some amazing very, very proud, loud Muslims who are doing amazing stuff in terms of making their communities more progressive and more outward looking. Although, as the chief rabbi says, they're, they're few and far between and the moderate voices tend to be drowned out. OK, well, as we heard just now in the news with Vivian, some sad news this week that we have lost a Holocaust survivor in the form of Sabina Miller. But also we've actually lost someone else who's of noteworthy status. Who are we mourning in this week's paper? Yeah, aforementioned uh, Sabina Miller, a survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto, lost all her family. Leslie Temple, RAF Bomber Command, 93, passed away this weekend, flew 30 sorties across Nazi Europe, spoke fluent German, so in his RAF plane he used to talk all sorts of nonsense to the Luftwaffe to get them all confused and flying in the wrong direction. Long-time member of Ajax, lived in Ilford for many years, fabulous man, great hero, met the last three prime ministers, I believe, and yet a great Jewish war hero, so sorely missed Leslie Temple. And also on the page, it's it's nothing I can do justice to in, in a million words, let alone a minute, there are these extraordinary colourised images of Holocaust victims, a 14-year-old girl, a Polish girl, who had just arrived at the camp when this picture of hers was taken, you know, these awful identity images that first uh, introduced into the camp. She looks absolutely terrified, and the colour 
really brings the horror to light. We've headlined it, A New Vision of Hell, and you can see every mark on her face, the blood on her lip, the horror in her eyes, and it's three images. This poor girl didn't last three months and passed away in 1943. Page six, and it really brings those 70 years right slap bang into the today when you when you see it in, in that vivid colour. Because if anyone doesn't actually quite understand what we're getting at, it's because those images obviously were all depicted in black and white. An artist now has actually gone out of the way to restore this and to actually demonstrate to us what it would be like in almost high definition colour. And as you say, it almost does... Mm-hmm suddenly give a whole new meaning because somehow black and white photos didn't do it the justice that the colour ones are doing. I think you notice this too in certain documentaries on television where they can now have in colour, mm. which previously they weren't able to do, and that really does bring it to It does life. bring it home, doesn't it? Yes. Makes yeah. an amazing difference. Yeah. yeah, I think you're almost kind of protected by the black and white, aren't yes. you? It's almost uh, almost like a shield yes. away from the true horror of what of what you can witness so yeah it, it looks literally like any sort of family picture that you might have on your mantelpiece you, and you can really relate to yeah it could be your child marina amaral is the the lady who's colorized these images and lots of others of all sorts of people going through history particularly focusing on 1850 to 1960 and i think the book's out later this year and if you do want to see what we are referring to page six of the paper this week now it's not often that i say this but in the paper this week is us, is in the Jewish views. Yeah, well, don't think that we had a slow news week and we just had nothing else to put in the paper. We, we <laughs> lovingly compiled this. I'm sure, well, as, as you, dear loyal listener, I'm, I'm sure are aware, The Jewish Views is the number one Jewish podcast in the country. And we have counted down from one to ten, ten reasons why it's unmissable, why you will keep your finger firmly on the pulse of the community if you listen to this show every single week. And we've outlined all the fabulous guests that you guys have had, the wonderful people that put it together every single week putting their time and their effort and their passion for the community into into every minute stop blushing phil out of interest richard what did you put at number one number one news and views with an exciting array of new sport and entertainment jewish views brings much needed voice of community about the latest issues that matter most thank you and what did you put at number 10 Uh, (laughs) well we we're only at eight now i'm I'm writing it as we speak so (laughs) if i can get to 10 that'd be a miracle but as you can see, it's all spelt out. I mean, the, the show has been under the umbrella of the Jewish News now for what? Has it been a couple of years, mm. I think it's been? Just over two years. Mm. And yes. before that, it was Sunday Jewish Radio. And before that, it was, I mean... Various other incarnations. Other, yeah, other incarnations that we don't need to yes. dwell on now. Because, frankly, we're out of time for a look at the paper this week. But, Richard, thank you very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News, though, every Thursday across London. Or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, barely a week goes by when, unfortunately, one instant of anti-Semitism is reported in one way or another. But in the last week, various institutions within our community have received what can only be described as hoax threats. And in order to find out what they could and should be doing about it, let's now speak to Mark Gardner, the communications director from the CST, Community Security Trust. He joins us on the line now. Mark, I suppose the first question has got to be that to anyone who does feel that they are under some sort of attack, whether it be a hoax or serious, what are they supposed to do? What should be their initial reaction? Well, the initial reaction has to be to take it seriously, but also to stay calm. So phone call immediately to the police, phone calls to CST is a pretty good way of starting that process. For example, the other day when we started receiving news of these hoaxes, the first reaction is, right, what have you received? What's actually written in it? 
send us a picture of it immediately. Have you told your security guards at the school? Is there anything unusual going on at the school? And to be honest, once you receive three, four or five notifications of it, it's looking fairly obvious that, please God, it's a hoax. At the same time, the staff here are immediately on the phone to the police, both at local police stations and then more centrally at Scotland Yard. Yeah. Is there any indication where these hoaxes are coming from? Well, this one in particular went to schools across the UK, including specifically in London, Manchester and North Yorkshire. And it's probably about 400 schools overall. So it's not, you know, no way it's just Jewish schools. It's, it's all sorts of schools across the country, some of which, you know, reacted in a more, I don't want to call it a panicky way, but, but, but some of which were obviously really, really concerned and, and maybe others of which were a little bit too complacent about it. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to say, oh, I take it seriously, be concerned, but don't let it disrupt the school day because ultimately, of course, the responsibility is the physical well-being of students and staff. And then there's the psychological well-being. So I, I think it's all about knowing exactly what your processes are for is dealing it, with such things. Is there any way of explaining why the hoaxer wants to make the hoax? Oh, because there are people, there have always been people who like to cause distractions, people who like to, to cause emergencies, people who don't want to sit a school exam that morning. And nowadays, modern technology, modern media just makes it so much easier to do. So do you think the hoax is coming from within the schools or within a school? Or, or No, this, this, this particular hoax seems for some reason to come out of a game called Minecraft that you might be familiar oh, lots with. Lots of kids play that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people involved doing Minecraft stuff and it, it seems that there was there was probably someone, I don't know how you get from playing Minecraft to then deciding to send this kind of message to about 400 schools across Britain, a message in both English and Arabic, but apparently that's where it stems from. As far as CST are concerned, is there any clear way you can actually tell the difference between a genuine threat and a hoax? Or is it really a case if you have to analyse each situation? Yeah, each situation has got to be analysed. I don't want this to sound wrong, but when I heard the number of schools that had received it, and when I heard that it was non-Jewish schools as well as Jewish schools, every single one of those things basically leads you to believe that the whole thing is a hoax. But you need every single school to be utterly alert to its local situation, its immediate environment. Because what if one of them, what if just one of them is not a hoax? Am I imagining this is possibly not really a hoax? That they, the hoaxer wants you to think it's a hoax, and then he will eventually, God forbid that this happens, but he would eventually do something like blowing something up. Well, that's, that's the danger psychologically, isn't it? First of all, what you asked before, what sort of a person thinks of doing this? And if someone thinks of doing this, then actually what is their end game? Or what sort of state do they build themselves up into by doing it again and again? That's on the one hand. Then on the other hand, you know, if, if somebody, God forbid, wanted to carry out such a thing, then this would be a pretty good way of going about it. And we know from history that just because you have lots and lots of false alarms 
it doesn't mean that one of them ends up being a real alarm. I, I mean, it sounds a ridiculous thing to compare it to, but I just read a big article about intelligence failings in Israel prior to the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And, you know, the big problem was that the, the Egyptian army had mobilized so many times in the years immediately prior to the mobilization that ultimately was actually because they were going to go to war. Just finally, if someone does think that they need to contact the CST because they're worried that their institution is under threat, how do they get in contact? If someone wants to contact CSC, well, first of all, if it's if it's an emergency like a bomb scare, then they should call the police on 999. Our 24-hour number is 0800-0323-263. That's 0800-0323-263. That's our emergency 24-hour number. But also our general number is quite easy to remember. It's 0208-457-9999. That's 0208-457-9999. Mark Gardner, Communications Director from the CST. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on The Jewish Views today. God, I tell you, just listening to that just now, it just it makes you think who in their right mind actually does carry out. As you were saying, Clive, what, what is it that actually takes someone to go out of their way and think it's a good <clears throat> idea to start intimidating yeah. a community in that fashion? It's just extraordinary. It's difficult really, though, to establish whether it is a specific anti-Semitic hoax because if non-Jewish schools are involved as well one wonders if it's that's not the case but right you, we've still got to be careful but they could they could uh, hoax non-Jewish schools just to put you off the scent of it being an anti-semitic hoax exactly you don't know do you how these minds work well quite well there you go all right but as Mark did say there if you do feel that you are in any way under threat then please do not hesitate to call the CST. Okay, let's move on to our other main story this week. And you may have seen in last week's edition of The Jewish News, the article written by our next guest, Claire Hedwart, joins us in the studio now to talk about the headline that read, Trauma from Conversion Therapy. In my Jewish community, being gay isn't an option. This is obviously a massive subject for the community because it relates to moving with the 21st century, where, of course, as a society, we are by and large far more accepting of people who identify themselves as anything other than heterosexual. But yet at the same time, you are talking about a Jewish community, which by and large tradition says that that is not what our community does do. Well, Claire has been looking into this in great detail with her article. So if you didn't read it, I'm delighted to say Claire actually does join us now. And Claire, if we start off with, I suppose, why? Why was it that you wanted to look into this particular and massive subject? Well, I'm a trainee psychotherapist and a writer, and I went to a panel at Limud, which featured panellists who'd had experience of conversion therapy. I was really disturbed by what I heard and people's experiences and just how painful they had in terms of coming out and recommendations by rabbinical authorities to seek conversion therapy. And I thought it was really important to, to highlight this issue. What rabbinical authority decided that they should actually try that therapy? It's vague. I would say, generally speaking, the further, unsurprisingly, the further along the spectrum you go in terms of the community, the right, the more right you go, the more you'll find an advocation of this treatment by rabbis. It's very interesting about this, what you're saying, because many, many, many years ago, I, a fellow student that I knew was 
forced by his parents to go into conversion therapy. And he became, even as a result of it, he became very depressed, but he then became even more homosexual. And because of those days being what they were, he was terrified of telling his parents the situation that he's in. And so he pretended for many, many, many years that he wasn't homosexual and that the, the therapy had worked. But the therapy had a terrible effect on him. I see it as a huge violation of the therapeutic relationship. And the people, the young people that I interviewed, talked about being in reparative therapy for years, by which point you've developed a significant relationship with your therapist. And as far as you understand it, with the therapist's use of, of Freudian techniques, trying to uncover if there's been any abuse, just very kind of problematic technique. You're led to believe that somehow if you undertake a course of reparative therapy, you can become heterosexual. Which is not possible. Which is not possible. And it's a practice that's been condemned by the UK Council of Psychotherapists, the NHS, the Royal College of GPs. A memorandum of understanding was signed in 2017, speaking out against the harmful practice. I mean, it's ostensibly been banned. But I mean, as late as 2009, it was found that one in six therapists had engaged with some sort of method of gay reparative therapy. So it's not a practice that's actually, sadly, it's not uncommon. And I think in the Jewish community, it does reflect a reticence at best at helping people come out and at worst a negligence actually you you've mentioned a little bit about the therapy do you know what the therapists do in depth to try and bring turn people around if you like gay reparative therapy has used everything from i mean in the 50s and 60s the nhs actually funded reparative therapy and they used techniques such as hypnosis electric shock treatment the young people that i interviewed talked about what seemed to be a pattern was that therapists were using Freudian techniques of going back to childhood and actually what they're doing from a therapeutic perspective is trying to uncover some sort of rupture in the parental relationship which would lead to you being homosexual which is absolutely ridiculous and has no grounding in any kind of psychotherapy surely we're we're dealing with educated people in the rabonim one would thought we're dealing with educated people within the rabonim surely they must know that you can't turn someone around but having said that of course you're talking about education that's based on thousands and thousands of years ago so it's almost to some degree dare i say understandable that if someone does follow text practices and all of that from many many years ago This is only relatively new that we understand more about the way that people are about their sexuality. So it's almost as if it's not an excuse, but you would be forgiven for recognising why someone who believes so deeply in classic traditions would think along those lines, even if it's not right. I think at best we can understand it as a rabbinic desire to stop a person from committing a transgression and at worst homophobia i mean it's hard for me to justify because it's 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 so beyond the means of of anything logical or rational i think the interesting thing to think about is also from the point of view of the person who seeks this treatment why are they seeking treatment to become straight when they're educated university educated young people and i think that reflects a couple of things i think that reflects 
a difficulty in coming out in the UK Jewish community and a desire to be religious and the notion that you can't be religious and also and be gay, which are both massive problems. And, you know, it's an opportunity for us to look at ourselves as a Jewish community and ask why that is. You're a psychotherapist yourself or you're working in that area? Trainee. All right, you're a trainee, <laughs> but you're studying it. The people that try this conversion therapy, not the patients, but the actual therapists, are they recognised therapists? They are. The UK Council of Psychotherapy has condemned it. You're not allowed to practice it as a psychotherapist. The young people I interviewed had seen therapists with accreditation. So make of that what you will. You can be struck off for this. And has anybody gone through that therapy and said, hey, I've changed, I'm heterosexual now? There's, there's no record of anyone becoming straight through therapy. Mm-hmm. Surely you're born whatever you're born sexually. And there's no way that anybody can change you, is there, really? No, but I, I want to go a step further. I want to I say that I belong to a Jewish community which celebrates all forms of gender and sexual identity. Is that a a liberal reform? I see that as a Jewish humane perspective. I don't don't want to say that's a liberal perspective. I want to say that's a humane perspective. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating hearing what you have found from this. And thank you so much, Claire Hedwat, who's been telling us about it. I think now is the time, though, that we will bring in our next guest to this conversation. Dahlia Fleming is executive director of Keshet UK and joins us on The Jewish Views now. Dahlia, I suppose that first and foremost, to anyone who is maybe not familiar with what Keshet UK actually does, could you maybe just summarise exactly what your organisation is there for? I can indeed. Keshet UK has a vision of a world where no one has to choose between their Jewish and LGBT plus identities, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and, and other identities around gender identity and sexual orientation. We work across all denominations, in schools, synagogues, youth movements, universities and and, and community organisations to try and make the community as inclusive as possible. What we don't do is we don't do kind of one-to-one counselling or that kind of support, but we make sure that our community is able to include members who go to it. So if you have, if you do need counselling for whatever reason, you can go to an organisation and they'll be inclusive for LGBT plus people. If you want to go to synagogue, you won't go there and, and, uh, and feel... And so you're being othered. In terms of the orthodox rabbis, and sometimes it's the rabbis that are easier to deal with than the institutions themselves, just like some orthodox rabbis have liberal interpretations of the fact that they would say the world was created in six days, on the seventh day God rested, but they have an answer for how come we had a Bronze Age and an Ice Age and evolution Mm -hmm. generally. Are some of them more liberal in their interpretation of homosexuality being a, a taboo? A lot of the time at Keshet UK, we don't really touch upon the halakha because depending on who we're working with, it'll, it'll depends on how much they follow that. But what we do do is we talk a lot about the values and what it is to be Jewish. We talk about everyone being created in God's image. We talk about the importance of saving a life. We talk about how actually inclusion is a Jewish value. Orthodox, liberal, reform, Mazorti, that is what's important. And we have very good relationships across the board whether orthodox liberal reform is or t. and i think that's what we really focus on and that's why 
there are conversations taking place in the orthodox world about how can they make sure that they are reducing harm? How can they make sure that young people and other people within their communities, whether LGBT+, their family members, are safe to engage with Judaism and to continue living a Jewish life? Because I think that's what really is important to them. They want people to be safe and they want people to be able to continue being Jewish. And there is a historical evidence of people having to choose one of those two identities. And personally, how you choose between your faith, which is pretty intrinsic to me, and you know your sexual, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, that they're pretty impossible choices that people are having to make. I think it's at this stage that we should listen to what happened. When I spoke a little earlier on in the week to the author of They Said I Was Misguided, a chap by the name of Evan Bloom, who unfortunately wasn't able to join us for this recording. But have a listen to what happened when I caught up with him, because he's got a fascinating story to tell. They said I was misguided. What an evocative title. And the author of such a book is sitting right opposite me now. Evan Bloom joins me on The Jewish Views. Evan, can we start off with, I suppose, your background, really, because I think we know why you're here to talk based on the theme of the show so far today. It's fairly obvious. But tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I was brought up in a very traditional Orthodox Jewish family within an Orthodox Jewish community. And I went to Jewish schools. I only mixed with Jewish friends. So I had no real understanding of the outside world, if you like, beyond the community. I was quite a naive child, and I stumbled across the realities of life quite late, if you like. I realized that I was gay only when I was about 14. I realized that there was definitely something different about me which related to sexuality at that point. How did you identify that something was different based on, say, what others had told you you should be feeling and you weren't feeling? What was it? Yes. To be honest, until that point... In Jewish schools, the education that you receive is all geared towards the notion of, you know, creating a, a nice Jewish family when you're older, getting married, settling down, have children. And to me, although I totally understood that and realized that it was considered normal, I knew there's something about that was not quite right in my case. I didn't quite know why. I thought, that's not something I can relate to here. I suppose when my hormones started kicking in, that was the, the kicker, really, <laughs> from about the age of 14. I knew what that really meant, and I started developing attractions to boys as opposed to girls. And it was very evident that that was something quite against the norm, because in school, conversations could start gearing themselves towards, oh, girls, I know I want to go out with this girl or this girl, and people talking about it, and I could not relate to that at all, and I knew full well why. And I would have rather have gone out with one of the boys, I suppose. And at what point did you think, okay, now's the time, I need to come clean, I need to tell my family that I, I'm not in the vision that they, they might have had for me? That was never my intention. Certainly not at the beginning. I, I was quite bewildered with, you know, the understanding of, of who I was and the fact that it was quite different and not considered normal. So I had no intention of telling anyone. And in fact, I tried to keep it all inside and somehow suppress it or just carry on with life and think, oh, maybe, you know, something will happen where it will change. But it never did. And the way that I came out was not by choice, I must say. It was sort of thrust upon me later due to a situation that occurred at home with my parents, So, which I explain in some depth in my book, a confrontation between myself and my mother. So I hadn't necessarily intended to come out at that point either. But once I did, I realized I had to stand my ground. I had to now explain who I was and justify my life, actually, in some way. 
Well, the term is, obviously, they said I was misguided. That's obviously the title of your book. Yes. And I'm guessing that it was a case of that you were told that something was amiss. Absolutely. By not only my family, but friends and authority figures that I ended up speaking to. Rabbis that I either was told I need to speak to. And in one case, in fact, the very first rabbi I actually had a conversation with about this, I initiated the conversation there was a rabbi I felt I related to really well and he seemed, you know, much more sort of modern and approachable orthodox rabbi opposed to the others that I'd known from before who weren't. And for some reason, you know, it had been bubbling up inside me for so long, I'd been carrying it with me, I thought I must be able to tell someone and maybe this rabbi might just understand and make me feel a bit more accepted and the very opposite was the case and I was told in no uncertain terms that, of course, it was totally against the Jewish religion it was very much a misguided notion and that there must be some kind of test that you know, God is, has put upon which I must overcome. And that was the only sort of thing I, I was given. And how did that make you feel when you heard that someone that you thought that you could trust, someone that you could ultimately confide in, mm. tells you that ultimately, and this word has been batted about a couple of times, that you're not, quote, normal. How did that make you feel? It was quite a soul-destroying experience for me. I knew that the way I was feeling was not considered normal, even up to that point, because, you know, attending an Orthodox Jewish school, all around you, it's quite apparent, you know, on a daily basis, there was even bullying in my school, which again, I refer to in the book, where boys were picked on for being gay, even if they weren't, just because they seemed possibly a bit effeminate or... Yes, you it know, was almost so, used as a taunt, a taunt, even though it wasn't necessarily the case. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and I witnessed a number of these occasions. Funnily enough for me, that never happened. I was never bullied specifically for that. But watching this happen in numerous occasions at school, I thought, I know that I actually do fit into I don't think these boys necessarily are, but I, th- I know that I am. And I felt a sense of guilt, if you like, about it. You know, it was very difficult. But it was very apparent that at school... This was the the attitude, and it came from teachers as well, saying the only acceptable way to live is, you know, you go to yeshiva, then you find a suitable wife, you get married, you have children, and that is it. And I remember one of the rabbis at school, in one of the lessons, he was talking about homosexuality and talking about how grave an abomination it is, and how actually it's responsible for certain ills in the world. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't believe this can possibly be the case. I know I'm a gay person, but I know full well that what this man is saying is is not only damaging, but extremely hurtful and upsetting. So I already had experienced this type of feeling when I eventually spoke to this rabbi in the yeshiva who told me this and made me feel, again, like I wasn't normal, like it's a totally unacceptable state of being. It just consolidated in me, I suppose. How have you managed to work any form of Judaism into your everyday life? Are you at all orthodox still? No, I've reached a sort of happy compromise in myself uh, over you know, all these years subsequently. I'm not an orthodox practicing Jew for all sorts of reasons. I you know, long ago realized that the institution is not something that is acceptable to me. And I was raised as an Orthodox Jew, so I actually have never felt comfortable thinking I'll join a you know, a reform or liberal Jewish community because actually that's just not where I come from. So it left me with this major dilemma and I realized that's not the way I can live my life. So I stopped practicing pretty much everything. But still, I actually have the utmost respect for still my family. I mean, we've come a long way. Again, that's something which has evolved over time, acceptance I've actually gained now. But my relationship with the religion and with God is very much more I'm at peace with 
who I am. Yes, of course, I'm Jewish. I do still believe in God very much. I'm not a practicing Jew in any way, but I certainly still respect the traditions of Judaism, let's put it that way. And do you think that that is something that potentially would be different had the community been more accepting of your sexuality? Do you think you would have carried on down the path of a Jewish lifestyle? I think that's very much more likely to have been the case, yes. And so, Dahlia, just picking up on sort of what we've just heard with Evan there, that kind of almost ties in with what you were saying, where some people are almost forced into choosing between their religion or their sexuality. No, exactly. And, and I, don't, I don't, as I said before, I don't think choosing between those intrinsic parts can, can always be the, the best of decisions, but actually people are forced to. And it, can, and can, it can lead to people, not all people, some people are very happy to walk away from, from one or the other. But on the whole, my experience is that it makes, it makes people walk through the world a bit broken in the sense of they've had to turn away from something and either they are oppressing feelings, parts of their identity, or they are having to walk away from a community that previously has been a very safe and, and, and loving space for them. Can I just throw in at this stage, I think it is really important to mention this, and we should have probably mentioned this sooner as well, that despite the Jewish Fuse's best efforts, we did try very hard to actually get somebody from the more religious sect of the community to join us on this week's program to maybe talk a little more about the religious elements of this very delicate subject. But for whatever reason, nobody, they either didn't respond or they said they didn't want to talk to us. So I would like to point out that if anyone is listening, maybe from the more religious sect who does actually have an opinion on this and would like to share that with us, please do feel free to join us in future episodes of The Jewish Views. I I was only going to say there was one word that Evan used, which is a horrible word. I hear it time and time again. It's an abomination. It's an abomination to be gay. What an awful thing to to say to someone about how you are. This is an abomination of you. And the other second thing that he mentioned about leaving Judaism almost altogether. Yes, I'm Jewish and I still believe in God, but I don't have that commitment to my Judaism anymore. There's evidence from America that shows that if you are an if you're an LGBT person and your community is accepting and your family is accepting and your friends are accepting your experience is much better to the point if they aren't, you're eight times more likely to have attempted suicide and six times as likely to report high levels of depression. So it's really important when we talk about this that being LGBT is not a mental health condition. Mm. However, if your society is telling you're an abomination, if your society is telling you you don't exist, that you aren't welcome, there is an understandable reason why there might be higher levels of poor mental health amongst this community. And so we have a responsibility within our community to create a world in which we're told conversion therapy not only does not work, it is dangerous. Mm. And to create inclusive inclusive Jewish worlds in, in Britain. In some ways, it's sad that we're still talking about this in the 21st century. But within the Jewish community, has it got better in the last 10, 15 years? I would say it has. I would say... You know, even a few years ago, it probably was from the best intention that people were saying, go and have conversion therapy, right? But actually, if those people had spoken to medical professionals or LGBT plus people, they probably would have found out how dangerous it is. We have really wonderful relationships with the Orthodox community because there is a real effort to try and understand. And so it does still happen. There are still areas of our community across all denominations that don't know the best ways to include and accept and welcome LGBT plus people. And that really is across the board, but across the board. And it has been 
probably the best experience I've been at, you know, I've only been exec director of Keshet UK for the last four months, is seeing how much work is taking place across all denominations to really think about what can they be doing and the work is taking place. I think it was about a year ago, there was a wedding in the Reform Synagogue in London. There was a wedding of two men. So there are parts of the Jewish religion which are accepting I mean, we we kind of work on a bit of a of a spectrum in terms of different parts of the community can can be in different places. Some might want to be really celebratory. Some lots of parts of our community do have same sex marriages. They you know they will march in pride, and other parts where they feel comfortable, where their community can go, is different. You know what they want to make sure is that people understand that homophobic, biphobic, transphobic, bullying, discrimination is unacceptable. That if someone comes out to you, you don't tell them to go to conversion therapy. But you say, thank you for telling me, and our community is still a safe place for you. And and some of those responses may not be good enough for some LGBT plus people. But but across the board, our community is trying. And that, that from our experience, and, and hopefully, if someone comes out to their rabbi now, maybe they'll have had Keshet UK training. Maybe they'll have spoken to some people. Because actually... There are lots of LGBT plus people and their families in these communities and they don't want to, to be turned away because it's not only that one trans person you might be missing, it's actually their families. Well, unfortunately, we are flat out of time, but it really has been a fascinating subject. And I'm, I fear that we could carry on talking about this for a whole other episode. But for now, we will have to leave it there. But Dahlia Fleming from Keshet UK, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on The Jewish Views. It's now time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinlos United Synagogue. This Shabbat, the Shabbat before Pesach, is known as Shabbat Hagadol, or the Great Shabbat. One might ask, Manish Tana, why is this Shabbat greater than any other Shabbos? And our commentators suggest a variety of reasons for this particular designation of greatness. There is a suggestion that the name goes back to the original Shabbat before the Exodus. In Egypt, the children of Israel had already taken a lamb for themselves, ready to sacrifice a few days later. It was a great Shabbat because of the anticipation and the excitement, all the children of Israel acting together, all of them awaiting the greatest journey of their lives. Others say that it's called Shabbat HaGadol because it looks forward to great things. The Haftorah from the book of Malachi concludes with a reference to Elijah the prophet coming to herald the great and awesome day of God's redemption. On a different tack, there is a halachic requirement to spend the day studying the laws of Pesach, how to kasha the house and make things ready for Seder. The day is named after the greatness of this study and the significance of the work. Historically, rabbis were only expected to give a drasha on two Shabbatot during the course of the year. The first is the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is known as Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of return or repentance, and the second is Shabbat Hagadol. It's true. For 50 Shabbatot in the year, the rabbi really had the discretion not to speak. But on this Shabbos, he must. And it is called Shabbat HaGadol because it is traditional that he delivers a great and lengthy sermon. In many communities, that lengthy drasha is given on Shabbat afternoon at Mincha, after we read through the early part of the Haggadah. In some communities, Shabbat HaGadol was marked by extending the day and making Havdalah late. Of course, here this year, the clocks go forward on Saturday night. However long our Shabbat, Sunday will be an hour short. 
One of the key mitzvot that is highlighted over Shabbat Hagadol is the requirement to clear one's house of chametz, where to look and how to clean, and how certain implements may even be koshered through immersing in boiling water or against a hot flame. Incidentally, we'll be koshering vessels at Kinloss this Monday evening from 8 p.m. To encourage diligence, a rabbinic edict bans all chametz that isn't cleared away from being used after Pesach as if it were treif. To circumvent wastage, chametz that might be too expensive to jettison, such as a seller of good whiskey or packets of pasta, can be set aside and sold. The rabbi is appointed as an agent for the sale and then draws up a contract with a designated non-Jew who pays a down payment on the total. In the event that he doesn't stump up the full purchase price by the end of Pesach, the sold chametz reverts to its original owners. On the night before Seder, we search our houses for chametz by candlelight. You might think that a bright torch would be better, and you're certainly less likely to set fire to the armchair. Nonetheless, the sages require that we use a small flame as it compels us to get close into the nooks and crevices where a cracker may have fallen or crumbs might accumulate. While physical chametz is flour and water that is leavened, many commentators explain our search and destroy mission as a metaphor for introspection and getting rid of our own puffed-up senses of self-importance or arrogant mean. We shouldn't be grand and haughty like Pharaoh. We should model the modesty of Moses and the dignity of servants of the King of Kings. So this Thursday night, as soon as possible after nightfall, take a candle and a feather and a wooden spoon, turn off the lights, go through your kitchen cupboards and your drawers, your sideboard, all those places where you store food and drink, all the places where the kids store them for you. Go through your car and your pockets and your briefcase, the picnic hamper, under the sofa cushions, and look really carefully. Is there chametz there? If it seems a fruitless exercise, just consider that we never think about God or being Jewish when we access those places normally. Just think how much room there is to be Jewish or more Jewish in all those areas that we let the chametz in, but that God never gets to touch. Wishing you and all your families a chag kasher v'sameach. Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our thoughts for the week. And that's all we've got time for in this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed to you at home for listening. Thank you to all of our guests, to Evan Bloom telling us about his book, They Said I Was Misguided, to Claire Hadwat, psychotherapist in training, but also, of course, the journalist who brought us the article this very conversation has been based on, to Mark Gardner from the CST, to Dahlia Fleming, executive director of Keshet UK. Also, thank you goes to our producer, Sue Greenberg. Don't forget, if you would like to listen to this episode again, or indeed any other episode of The Jewish Views again, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News. But from me, Phil Dave, from John Kay, Clive Roslin and Tony Honigberg, we hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.